God the Almighty is the author, the maker, and the source of all true peace. Apart from him, there is no true peace. As we have now ascended to the for they shall be called sons of God, we're approaching the very reason the Father chose to work through the Son upon the earth, to reconcile man unto himself, not holding our trespasses against us, so there would be peace between God and man. In case you didn't know, man in his natural state is hostile against a holy God. And God in his totally holy essence is against the natural man. The apostle John told us of this in John chapter 3 and verse 36 when he wrote, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. King David also tells us God is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. Or as the KJV puts it, God is angry with the wicked every day. Every day. Psalm 7, verse 11. Both Isaiah, chapter 48, verse 22, which we read in Sunday school this morning, and chapter 57 of Isaiah, verse 21, sums it up by saying, There is no peace, says the Lord. For the wicked. As we see disease, famine, and death continue to torment the sons of men, we know the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. However, some of us see the wicked prosper and say, How can God be angry with them when they're doing? so well, sounding like Asaph in Psalms 70, Psalm 73. If that's you, then your understanding of peace doesn't line up with God's definition of peace. God's definition of peace isn't the absence of conflict. On the contrary, God's definition of peace is having a surety and resolve through the conflict. It's being able to face conflict, strife, and disappointments and know that for those who love God, this conflict works together with this disappointment and this sadness for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? To conform us into the image of Jesus the Christ. That's his purpose. And through it all, through, that, through all of the trials and tribulation, the Spirit of God is working in us to remind us that if God is for us, it doesn't matter who's against us. He, the Holy Spirit, helps to mold us into people who have now learned to endure the most gut-wrenching trials that life can bring our way. As uh, the Apostle James wrote, Count it all joy, my brothers. When you face trials of various kinds. Why? Because you know that the working of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces this steadfastness. And I, I love the older Christians who have this resolve, right? It says, I've seen it all. I'm not going 
anywhere. God has been too good. And I have moved too fast in the past. I have ran from God in the past. I've done things my own way in the past, and it didn't work out. So I know to wait on the Lord. I know to walk in righteousness for God's sake as he is conforming me, conforming and changing me, as he's using me to help other people as they are struggling. I can tell them how I waited on the Lord and God brought me through, so you wait also. Oh, they have learned to say, if I flee from the testing, strife, and trials that, are, that, that God is bringing me, that's tailored just for me, I will miss God's full effect for me. I will miss what he's doing in my life, that I may be perfect and complete is what God is doing in my life. That I would lack in nothing, that I would be able to count it all joy. King David put it this way. He says, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. It is good for me that I went through what I went through so that when I read your word, it's real now. I see that the way that I take, it seems right to me, but in the end, that's death, affliction. And we're thinking, some of us are thinking, how can that be good for me? Well, think of those who have, if you know any, of those people who have gone through surgery after surgery, yet lived to tell about it. And now they live sacrificial lives for Christ because they know how fleeting life is. Or those who have had their loved ones snatched away by death suddenly, yet they show up Sunday after Sunday to worship the living God who has never made a mistake. You have some of them sitting in your midst right now, and you never know it as they serve God and the people of God consistently. However, my question for you this morning is, are you there yet? Are you there yet? Are you walking in peace through the worst? Because that's what God provides in Christ through his spirit, his word, and his peacemakers his peacemakers. My title for this morning's sermon is Having Peace Through the Worst. Having Peace Through the Worst. I have broken it into three points that I want you to seriously consider. Point number one, the mindset of the peacemaker. The mindset of the peacemaker. Point number two, the activity and likeness of the peacemaker. And point number three, the importance of the peacemaker. The importance of the peacemaker. Follow, follow along, if you will, as I read Matthew chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to try to catch it in context. So instead of just verse 9, which, which is our verse this morning, I'm going to read verses 1 to 12. This is the holy word of God. There we read, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please pray with me at this time. Father, I thank you that you have given us this day to glorify you, to bless you, to come under the hearing of the word of God and be changed, to leave this place differently than when we came in, to allow the word to work in our hearts and to open our, our minds to the righteousness of Christ. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us this opportunity, this blessing to look more and more like Christ. In the name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen. Amen. Point number one, the mindset of the peacemaker. Our scripture says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. As we covered in the earlier sermons, the word blessed is the Greek word makarios. And what it means is to be fortunate happy, blissful, but it's not the momentary joy that even unbelievers receive in this life from time to time, but it's the immovable bliss, immovable bliss that the world can't give, nor can the world take away. It's a strong, deep conviction of being fortunate, even as you're facing your greatest fear in your darkest hour. When John Bunyan was in prison, he wrote a book called Grace Abounds. And in that book, he tells of a dream where he was on this mountain. And this mountain had two sides to it. One was a cold, dark, and dreary side. But the other side was a sunny and blissful, warm side, a a good side. And he would search and search to see how to get from one side to the other, from this dreary, cold, dark side to the sunny, joyous side. And he found a door or a gate. And after squeezing through this narrow gate, he was able to enjoy satisfaction, contentment, and peace. And when he woke up from this dream, he believed the cold, miserable side of the mountain represented a life apart from God, while the sunny side represented a life in the kingdom and the narrow door represented Christ. Then Bunyan proclaimed, but understand, The warm and sunny, joyous side of the mountain doesn't only represent life in heaven, but eternal life in the believer right now. I'm in agreement with Bunyan as he ends that that, that section of his book by saying, if you know Jesus as your savior, you have come through the door and entered a place of refuge and security, a strong tower where the righteous run into and are safe. And I love the way he points out the differences between those who know Christ and they have this inward condition within them. Doesn't mean everything on the outside is going peachy keen and lovely. It means that I know that the Lord God has saved me and chosen me. And while I was yet a sinner, his son died for me. While I was a sinner, not after I became righteous. No, while I was a sinner, his son died for me on the cross my name in his heart, in his head, you I am dying for. That, once you get that, that brings this peace that nobody can take 
away, compared to the non-believer whose day goes according to the wind, to the news, to, to, to what's happening, to how his body is feeling, to how much money he can gain, to how many people he can be with in one night, to how many people smile and pat him on the, smiles at him and pats him on the back. We have something much deeper than that. Entering through the narrow door of Christ is the best thing you can do on earth. And I'm also in agreement with Bunyan because he's in alignment with the Bible. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't say we'll have when we reach the sweet by and by, but we have peace with God because we have been justified. Declared righteous. The judge has banged the gavel on the table, the bench, and said, you're free to go. You're innocent because of Christ, because of what Christ did. For those who are hearing this right now and are not saved, this is letting you know that if you were to place your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior today, salvation and reconciliation and peace with God would actually and truly place, take place today, even at this very moment. You will have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ now. Then, as you set your mind on things that are above as opposed to those things that are on the earth, you will begin living as if you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What happens from there? As you continue to grow in your sanctification, instead of fighting over the most inane and shallow issues with family, friends, associates, neighbors, and co-workers, you begin walking in this peace that you recognize, if they would have said that before, I would have went off. I would have flew off the handle. But you know Christ is working in you. You know the words that you read are molding and changing you from the inside. You are no longer that person that can be coaxed, provoked, Move from this center to over here, where as you are arguing, God forbid, even cursing, while you're doing that, there's something saying, what am I doing? What am I, why am I here again? As you walk with Christ, before you get there and you feel it, you allow the Spirit of God to suppress it and say, okay, we have to agree to disagree. We have to agree to just separate on this part. We can talk about things we do agree with. We can go forward like that in peace. As we study the, the words that uh, uh, come and scream to us and speak softly even to us from the word of God, scriptures that we've been meditating on and, and memorizing that helps to keep us in peace, it comes to us like, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, Romans 12. It comes and it helps you. Or when we come across scriptures like Ephesians chapter 6, and we stop for a minute when we get to verse 11 to 15, and we slow down, and we ingest it, we imbibe it, we, we, we let it fill us up, right? In verse 12 specifically, you can turn there if you will. Um, I think it will be better if you see it. 
and you'll know I didn't just say something that's not there. Um, you can even check me after if I happen to slip and say something that's not there and help me out. But in verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul tells us we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We, we read that and we pause and say, oh, wow. And I'm, I'm looking at this person like they're the end all, be all, but we recognize there's something behind it. And now we're able to withdraw from heated arguments because the fruit of peace, which we receive from the Spirit of God, restrains us and reveals to us that the people who drive us bananas and make us the angriest are mainly, not totally, but mainly being driven by our spiritual enemy whose job is to move us further away from God's will, God's likeness, and God's peace. More on, God, more on God's likeness later, God willing. But the enemy of our soul uses the outer shell of the person or persons we're fighting with to accomplish his will. That's the visual tool he uses to wreck our lives, destroying all forms of earthly peace that we may have. Now, how do we fight that? Taking time in Ephesians chapter 6 will help you. Taking time, slowing down, and, and trying to understand what God is trying to teach you here. For lack of time, I'm not going to read it all, but I think if you did take time, it would help to change your life. Right? The instructions begin with us putting on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil, devil in verse 11. And this word schemes carries the idea of cleverness, right? Crafty methods of cunning deception. And Paul continues in verse 13 by saying, taking up the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, to put on and to take up conveys the idea of Permanence. Take it up, put it on, keep it on. This armor should be our lifelong attire, sustained, Sust just, just, just not being put off as if you can handle everything on your own at this moment. And what, what Paul does is he uses the common armor worn by Roman soldiers as the analogy for our spiritual defense. And he affirms its necessity if one is to hold his position while under attack. Satan's schemes are propagated through the evil world system over which he rules and are carried out by his demon soldiers. By his demon soldiers, right? Uh, schemes here is, an, is, is, is the all-inclusive uh, way that he attacks encompassing every sin immoral practice, false theology, false religion, and worldly enticement. You don't always know when it's, when it's coming. You don't always know when somebody's coming with it. So it takes the wisdom of God. It takes discernment. Is what they, they're telling me lining up with holiness? Is it going to cause me to be moved away from my time in prayer, my time in the word? It may seem like a blessing at first. Oh, I got a promotion. 
I'm going to have to work 12 hours a day, though, but we'll be okay. Will you really be okay? Will you really be keeping your mind steadfast on God? It's an honest question. Because in the end, when you look back and you're worn down and things are coming out your mouth that you know you shouldn't be saying, reflect on the moment you started giving your heart to the job. Reflect on that for a minute. Paul goes on to say in verse 14, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the what? The gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. The gospel is a gospel of peace. Before that, we were at war with God. We hated his rules. We despised his commands and fought against him at every turn by our behavior. Isaiah chapter 59 in verse 8 describes our olden days, not the golden days, our olden days. And it says, the way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. What happened? The gospel brought us peace. The good news that Jesus died for sinners is the only thing that brings peace between God and man. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says this up in one verse. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. The gospel in one verse. Then Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20 says, for him, speaking of Christ, all for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This gives us such confidence in Christ, no longer ourselves, but in Christ. Trusting in ourselves, we failed over and over. We were miserable. We thought we had it all together, but we just hated life. We hated people. We were angry because boasting in ourselves just brought depression, dare I say. Can I use that word? Anxiety. But what God does, he says, trust Christ. Put your confidence in Christ. He's the one who allows you to stand firm no matter what comes your way. And because we have peace with Christ, we have peace with God. That's not it. On top of that, he is our strength in the midst. He's not giving us peace from afar, but in the midst of every and any battle, challenge, and test, Jesus said, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, till you see me face to face. I am with you, and I will be with you. And as we grow in our trust in God and confidence in Christ, we begin to tell others of his faithfulness to save and bring peace to all who would believe in him. This is when God takes the peace receivers and turns them into peacemakers, transforming them from just keeping this thing to themselves and wanting everybody to know. Because I trust, I trust him and he's been there for me. He has kept me. I can't keep this to myself. Which brings us to point number two, the activity and likeness of the peacemaker. 
Our scripture says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What is a peacemaker? The word peacemaker here is the Greek word irenopoeis. Irenopoeis. It means lover of peace. Not that just, if I have peace, it's cool. If not, no, no. Lover of peace. And as the peace of God is now reflected in us, we begin taking on the family likeness. Thanks to our new nature and the Great Commission, we have this desire, this intense desire to be a peacemaker like God. Like God. Near the end of Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45, many of you know it well. Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So there may be some likeness is what he's saying. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This teaches us that God's goodness even extends on a certain level to his enemies. And this is difficult for some to receive, but we can't explain it away. This reveals how the evil have temporary joy and temporary peace in this life. They have healthy babies. Who formed the babies in the womb for that? They heal from serious diseases and broken bones. Who repaired their cells through tiny biological processes and mended their bones? This gracious benevolence from God is manifested in numerous blessings which he bestows upon the ungodly according to his will and according to his time. Once in a while, these numerous blessings will lead to someone being transformed and being granted faith and becoming someone who now has peace with God. Every once in a while that happens, right? Where do we see this in the Bible? Several places. But for now, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Acts chapter 14 and verse 8. Page 923 in your pew Bibles. Acts chapter 14 and verse 8. 923 in your pew Bibles. While towards the end of their first missionary journey... In Acts 14, beginning at verse 8, Paul, Barnabas, Luke, and the dream team are in a pagan Greek city of Iconia. The city named Lystra is where they are working. Keep that in mind. The scripture, beginning at verse 8, says, There was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. Mm. He listened to Paul speaking. And, looking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, it mentions nothing pertaining to his salvation, but that's not my main point here. Continuing, Paul said in a loud voice, stand up right on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So how did they show their pagan appreciation? Verse 13. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. 
But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. By the way, this title, The Living God, is one of the most glorious and distinctive of all the titles given to God. Why? Because it separated the God of Israel from the God of the other pagan nations, of the other nations. The living God, or a living God. Verse 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good. What? Good. By giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, gladness for the pagans. Why would God do that? Because he is the true definition of what it is to be good. We think we're good. We think other people are good. But Jesus said it well when he said, no one is good except God alone. However, if we are God's children, then naturally we should take on some likeness to his goodness. That's what Paul, Barnabas, Luke, and the crew are trying to do on their journey by spreading the gospel. By spreading the gospel. Let's keep reading. Verse 18. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel, they did what? When they had preached the gospel, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So, how did the Apostle Paul respond after getting beaten up and left for dead? He preached the gospel. And someone may be thinking right now, where's the peace in that? I don't see. Where is the peace, peace in that? He got beaten and left for dead. And the scriptures cry out to us, remember, peace is not the absence of conflict, but in knowing that God shows his love for us Christians, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We must learn to think outside of ourselves towards God's greater purpose. In this case, why would God have them in this violent place to face such persecution? For the salvation of precious souls? For the brothers and sisters who were strengthened and encouraged through the exhortation of the gospel, as the gospel is not only for unbelievers, but for believers as well? And for the calling on Timothy's life. For the calling on Timothy's life. Let's move down to chapter 16 and verse 1 of Acts. Chapter 16 and verse 1. 
two and a half years, roughly, have passed, and it's time for their second missionary journey. Believe it or not, they return to Lystra. No Barnabas, but, but Silas instead. It's the same city where Paul was beaten and left uh, for dead. But what would the city be like now? Two and a half years after they had shared the gospel with the people there. Would there be any more fruit? Verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. That's why God would have them in this violent place, to preach the gospel, for peace to be made with God. They exemplified peacemakers from brutal people they received violence, but they preached the gospel of peace, peace. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Many of us, many of us know that by heart. And it's one of our favorite verses until we need it. Until we need it. Then it's like we just draw a blank. It's like, well, we're not even thinking about Romans 8.28. It doesn't even compute in our minds. Why would anyone purposely stay in the midst of trouble doing God's will when they can at any moment compromise and take the easy, sometimes fleshly, way out? They stay because they truly believe. If I truly love God, it's going to work together for my good somehow, for his glory somehow. I don't see it, but I believe it somehow. Paul, Silas, Luke, and the rest of them, they had this God-given faith that created a peace within them that surpassed all understanding and transformed them seamlessly into peacemakers in the midst of opposition. Was their main purpose to teach men and women how to have peaceful lives on earth? No. It was to teach them how to obtain peace with God by being reconciled to him through the blood of Jesus. Verse 21 of Acts 14, uh, we, read, we read it. It says, when they had preached the gospel to the city, that's it. Not when they had preached the gospel to the city and preached good living and preached how to get your bellies fed and how, how to have a great life here on earth. No, when they had preached the gospel to this city. Are they looking for more? That's the key. Because if you learn how to have a good life in this world and don't understand you need to have peace with God, you may have a good life in this world, but hell is coming. Hell is coming faster than you realize. Their main mission was to preach the gospel because by grace through faith, a transaction takes place, right? Christ's 
goodness upon me. My evil was upon him and slain at the cross. This transaction, as I come before him now as a son adopted, righteous by his righteousness, not, not my own. The new birth gives you the ability to turn from a troublemaker to a peacemaker, from having this fear of facing trials to becoming someone who says, and I know this is going to work together for my good because I love God and he loves me. That's why Paul could say in one place, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But then in another place, say, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, even in the midst of this tribulation, as you go through tribulation, as you try to bring peace, as your co-workers curse at you, as your neighbor throws the cigarette butts on your grass, as people are just evil and evil will be here, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Rule, not come around once in a while, but rule in your hearts. That's Colossians 3.15 if you wanted to know. This brings us to my last point. The importance of the peacemaker. The importance of the peacemaker. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, Paul wrote, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Be at peace with all men, if that's possible. And we know without a doubt that some people are extremely difficult. Extreme, not just difficult, but extremely difficult, and argue as easy as they, as easily as they breathe. It's, it's, that's what they do. You know, when you see their their number, and they call you, oh man, and you contemplate, should I answer this? Should I answer this? Some people just do that, but we can't allow that to be our reason for not seeking, pursuing, being a lover of peace with everybody else who's not that way. Make the effort, child of God. That's what God requires of us. It's on us. The Bible is speaking of real peace. Not, 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 not. All right, woman, I'm tired of fussing with you. My family's coming over, so we're going to stop right now, but we're going to pick it up later. That's not peace. That's a truce. That's, that's a cold war. That's not what Jesus is speaking of here. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, I give to you. The Apostle Peter says to, to, to seek peace and pursue it in 1 Peter 3, which means maybe you will have to lose an argument every once in a while. And some of you are like, that doesn't even compute. What? Lose an argument? Bible counseling is available. It's, it's available. Okay. I just want you to know that. It's, it's like lose an argument on purpose. God said, let it go. But I want you to hear me clearly what I'm saying. The Apostle James in James 3.17. This is good. This is, I, I need you to get this, right? If, if everything else I said is a blur, James 3.17 has to stay with you. It has to stay with you. And verse 18. Here's what he says. But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. First pure, then peaceable. Gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Verse 18, 
and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The peace we make, here's what James is saying, the peace we make isn't some, let's all just go along to get along kind of peace. Or, or and it doesn't matter what you believe, say, or do, I'll never speak against you type of peace. That's not what he's saying. Because that type of peace doesn't do anybody any good. That's the kind of peace the priests and false prophets gave to God's people in the book of Jeremiah. And God told Jeremiah, they have healed the wound of my people lightly. Saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah 6.14. Watching the people you love live unrighteously. And choosing to keep your mouth quiet for the sake of peace isn't God's idea of peace because that's not love. That's not love. James says, uh, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. First comes purity, then comes peace. We are seeking a harvest of righteousness, as James put it. That takes speaking the truth, calling sin, sin. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 37, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And this seems to be diametrically opposed to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9. But on the contrary, Jesus is teaching us that as long as you stand for righteousness, you will have those who will be set against you, even in your own household. That's what happens when you seek the peace of the Bible, because the peace of the Bible doesn't evade issues. It confronts the problem. Peace is never pursued at the expense of righteousness. For righteousness to take place, the sword of truth has to fall, and that's going to bring division, because the world loves false ways and deception deceitfulness, cunning. Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone. It doesn't end there. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness which, without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, you cannot divorce peace from holiness if you're ever going to lead anyone to Christ. If we compromise on holiness for the sake of peace, then it isn't real peace. Once again, it's just a, a peace. I mean, it's, it's just, a, just a compromise. It's just a, 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 a cold war, a truce. What's happening during that truce? Everybody's reloading. They're getting ready. For the next time you bring that issue up, if you bring it up at all. In Luke chapter 12, verse, verses 51 to 53, Jesus said, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. When all you want to do is share the truth, of how people can have peace with God and maybe peace with their neighbors and co-workers. 
People get angry at that. They get angry at that. Even your sweet, unsaved Aunt May and Grandma. Why? Because you're telling the truth about God's righteousness, holiness, and purity. You're going to make them mad at you and bring division. But the hope is that afterwards, God will grant them a new heart. Placing his laws, writing his laws on that heart. Opening their eyes to the truth. Removing the darkness within them. Because he used you to plant a seed in them about righteousness, holiness, and purity. Because he used you to be someone who seeks peace. Someone who wants to be like their father. Bringing them peace between themselves and God. And maybe between you and them. I used to be one of those guys who would debate Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, line them up. Even wrong-thinking Christians, according to what I thought. Wrong-thinking Christians, right, for hours. And every time I thought I might come across one of them, I'd have my set of verses in my holster, ready to go, ready to shoot them down. But now, but now for the most part, I seek to proclaim Christ crucified, period. Everything else is a distraction. What meats you should eat, what, what day you should worship on, what you, you fill in the blank. Everything else is a distraction. Christ crucified salvation. Christ crucified salvation. Do you believe it? I, I don't want to hear that. Do you believe that? Let's open the books and let's read. But this big one in the middle, the Bible, that's the core. That's the core right there. To teach what I believe is accurate from the scriptures and trust God with the rest is my motto. motto. That's my motto. If you're there already, great. Great. But if you're not, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, okay, God has called me to be a peacemaker, but what does that look like in my life? Great, because the desire to be a peacemaker is there. That, that's great. First off, here's, here's, here's how I, I'm, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you with that, right? First off, make sure you have peace with God yourself. Make sure you have peace with God yourself. For those, of, uh, for those who are unsaved, there's this gap, this huge, infinite gap between you and God that only Jesus can close. Have you ever seen parents arguing out in public and their small child take the father by the hand and the mother by the hand and tries to bring them together because the child doesn't want them to argue. He's trying to bring them together, right, for the sake of peace. Mommy, Daddy, stop arguing. That's a small picture of what Christ does for the unbeliever who's infinitely away from God. And according to God's timing, it happens. According to God's will, it happens. Reconciliation comes. That's what the cross does. That's what Christ provided. You must believe in Christ as Savior in order to be saved. This is how you have peace with God. Secondly, if you have peace with God, you must make peace or strive to make peace with your fellow man or woman. Why? Because it affects your relationship with God. 
It affects your relationship, or sorry, your fellowship with God. I put it like that, your fellowship with God. This is why Jesus said, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. You have to repair that relationship with your spiritual sibling first if you're going to come to your father and their father in heaven because we're family. We're family, and we know what that's like. We know whether we have brothers and sisters or whether we're a parent when there's a disconnect between siblings and they're not talking to each other and they go to one of the uh, parents with a request, most often the parent will say, well, are you speaking to your sister yet? Did you guys make up yet? Why? Because that's what they want. Why? Because that's the image of God. We cannot be hard-hearted with a brother or sister in the Lord. We should not be hard-hearted with anyone, but because for righteousness sake, we're called to separate ourselves from the wicked as far as um, imbibing their life and taking on that life, right? We want to be um, an image of God to the world, right? Putting our lamp on top of the bushel or table, but we do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation. But the brother or sister in Christ, we cannot say, well, I'm not talking to them. I'm not dealing with them. And if we believe that there's a divide between us and someone else who knows the Lord as their Savior, that's our eternal brother and sister. And he says, if you're about to bring me a gift, if you're about to come to me um, at the offering table, and you remember that person, put it to the side. You have to make that right. You have to make that right. Our scripture says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. As sons and daughters of the living God, he holds us to a higher standard. He holds us to a higher standard. For instance, somebody here may be going through a real hard time right now, and you're thinking to yourself, how can I be a peacemaker when such such a weight is on my heart right now. I have so much sorrow. And what I, what I would say is while it is true, you have to have peace with God yourself in order to be a peacemaker. It is not true that sorrow and despair must be absent in order for you to be a peacemaker. And I'm, I'm going to end with this. On March 23rd of 2020, in the early stages of COVID-19, my wife, Sharon, um, was on the phone with her sister. And her sister was telling her of her issues with diarrhea and this nagging headache. So they spoke again the next day, and it was the same thing. But this time, Sharon could hear her, her sister's husband coughing in the background. Six days later, she passed away. Six days later, she was gone, leaving behind a husband, and three children under the age of seven. I have never heard my wife cry out like that before. I've never heard her cry like that before. Her baby sister was gone. Sharon could have 
chosen to shrink back, shrink back from relationships, commitments, even church, but she didn't. Through the heavy heart, through the turmoil and confusion going on throughout the world at that time, through the politics in the world and in the church, while wearing her mask, she was determined to be a peacemaker. And God maintained her peace. And as Jesus said, the, the peace he gives is not like the world gives, where the world can take it away. And it wasn't a, a, a grin and bear it type of peace, but it was an I have so much peace from the Lord that I'm going to restart the crochet class for the church while wearing my mask type of peace. She had an, I'm going to initiate a game night for the church so we may grow in love and unity type of peace. Even, and I'm going to help organize a meal plan for those families who have, who have experienced the birth of a child kind of peace. And most recently, it's an I'm going to watch the babies for those mothers who come to Woodside on Tuesday or Thursday mornings to participate in the help that Borough Pregnancy Counseling Center provides for those mothers kind of peace. Through those ministries, perhaps someone will be granted peace with the living God as Sharon's ultimate goal is to be a peacemaker for Christ. She would never tell you the heartache she went through and still goes through, but I'm telling you so you may see what peace in Christ looks like in real time from someone you know. One of the scriptures she held near her heart was Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3, which says, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Once again, peace isn't the absence of conflict, but it's knowing that God showed his love for you and that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Please pray with me. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for your words. I thank you for Christ. Thank you so much, Lord. What will we what would we do without Christ? Where would we be without Christ, Lord God? You have given us this, this personal, eternal love for you. You bear our weaknesses and our sins. You provide for our every need. You shield us from danger and you reveal your eternal truth to us from scripture. You truly work everything together for our good and your glory. You have given us of your spirit so that your spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, which creates an assurity of our salvation and helps transform us into your image. You are our father and we shall be called sons of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.